Hi friends, this is Dr. Michael Williams, and welcome back to another episode of the Diversify Path podcast. This podcast explores how investing in diversity can lead to a higher return of investment in pathology and laboratory medicine by learning from the knowledge and experiences of diverse voices in our field. My next guest is Dr. Ricardo Correa. Dr. Correa is an Associate Professor of Medicine, the Program Director for Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism Fellowship, and the Director for Diversity in Graduate Medical Education at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, staff clinician and researcher at Phoenix VAMC, and Health Equity Fellowship Director for Crichton School of Medicine in Phoenix. He is an editor and peer reviewer of multiple journals in endocrine research and medical education. He completed his medical school and master's in education at the University of Panama. He completed a research fellowship in epidemiology and tropical disease at ICGES in Panama City and his eternal medicine residency at Jackson Memorial Hospital, University of Miami program. In 2012, he was honored with the AOA in Gold DOC award from the UM or University of Miami then pursued his clinical and research fellowship in endocrinology with a particular focus on neuroendocrinology and adrenals at the National Institute of Health. He is board certified in medical quality, is the author of the book titled Case Report, Basics and Publication, and senior co-editor of the book Endocrinology of Aging. His research focus on neuroendocrinology, mainly on pituitary and adrenal tumor and healthcare disparities in diabetes and Latinx populations. He enjoys playing the saxophone, hiking in the Phoenix Mountains with the family, and traveling to other countries to learn about different cultures. Without further ado, here's Dr. Correa. All right, hi again, friends. This is Dr. Michael Williams. I'm here with another episode of the Diversify and Path podcast. I'm here with my next guest. So can you tell us who you are, where you are from, and your pronouns? Yes, uh, um, thank you, Michael. Uh, my name is Ricardo Correa, pronouns he, him. Hell, I am an endocrinologist by training. I work as a diversity director uh, at the University of Arizona College of Medicine uh, and also the program director for the Endocrine Fellowship there. In addition, I have been. Uh, st- I started a health equity fellowship at the uh, Creighton School of Medicine in in Phoenix. Well, the, oh, awesome! Thank you so much. And so, I always ask my guests coming on, what what got you interested in medicine, and what got you interested in doing the endocrinology? Yes. So, medicine. I think that uh, was when I was very uh, a little kid. Uh, I remember that uh, uh, when I asked my mother, when I started telling her about uh, that I wanted to become a doctor, she said, like, at the age of six or something like that, like any other kid, you know, they want to be um, police or doctors or all of that. But in my case, I think that it was something that I wanted to help others. So every time that somebody hurts or something like that, I was there. Uh, so that create my passion for medicine since a young kid. Then when I was like the age of 13, I had uh, delayed puberty. So that made me go to an endocrinologist, pediatric endocrinologist. Uh, and uh, when she was talking to me about uh, hormones and how hormones control the body and all of that, I just started thinking that this was the thing that I wanted to do in my future. 
so I started reading more about how the cells communicate each other. Is and, and I found that hormones was that way. Not only between we think about endocrine as the this the long distance traveling of hormones, but it's also the or how the cell communicate with each other through enzymes and hormones and they communicate to the neighbor through hormones. So so there is a big area in endocrine that we still in the research process, but that was since that time I got stimulated by that. And later on, uh, I entered medical school with that idea of becoming an endocrinologist. My mentor in medical school was an endocrinologist just by coincidence. I uh, was assigned and was an endocrinologist, loved biochemistry. So all of that just start cultivating it. I finished medical school, entered residency, and really I, I was just focusing on becoming an endocrinologist at the, at the end of the day. So so I, I, I did my fellowship, and I'm, I'm here now practicing endocrinology. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I always thank people for, um, it's one of my podcasts, I always thank people a lot because I love that they share the story and for people to listen to. Um, and so I wanted to take a step back, as I usually do when I dissect stories. Um, and I, I wanted to... Uh, First of all, if you have any advice for anybody who is, uh, let's say, a college student, high school student who is thinking about medicine, I know you had that encounter early, early on to drive your passion, but do you have any advice for anybody who's applying for medicine or thinking about a career in medicine? Yeah, I, I think that uh, there is a lot of opportunities in medicine. Sometimes we focus on medicine uh, as our main passion being the clinical part. And that's something that definitely, if you become a physician, you want to do. But also medicine offer you the opportunity of doing many other things that probably is outside the box. I always think about research, one of the things, like you're not just changing the, wor- the one person, but changing the entire, co- con- uh, the entire community or the entire world. Also, uh, uh, medical journalism. There are amazing physicians that do... Uh, 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 publications that do that are needed to in this time more than ever to promote the good information and not misinformation and disinformation. Uh, health equity is a topic that is right now so important. So there are physicians that we need that focus on health equity. Uh, and then all other areas, leadership, administration, Things like that that are, are are really important in all the healthcare system. If we really want to make a change, sometimes we can make a change as a clinician to our own patients. But if we want to make a change to the entire um, uh, uh, community, then there are other areas. So, what my recommendation is: anyone that is out there thinking that they want to become a physician please continue with that. If you have the passion and if you have the energy and you have been thinking this is because you can do it, don't let anyone discourage about your dream. Uh, Don't uh, be like if you are underrepresented, don't be afraid. Probably you are the first one going into medicine, but all of us have achieved that goal. So you can achieve your goal. Right. Awesome. And, and, and so it's, it's interesting, um, like when we did like, so I'll go back. So when I did medical school, our um, endocrinology unit was like the last uh, unit before we went up to study for step one. And so it was like a, it was interesting. It was a lot of information 
Um, got to see that before we went to step one, basically, was like our endocrinology uh, uh, exposure. So I, I kind of wanted to delve more about the topic um, and just a couple of things because I, I wanted to focus a bit of the interview about like your work with health equity, especially with the Latinx, Latinx population, um, and also, you know, the discussion about medical journalism. So let's start with at least your um, contributions, especially with the Latinx population. What, what was, was that something like when you were going through medical school, I know for um, the say blacks and Latinos um, and people of color who go to med- one of the things that could inspire people is basically um, going back and, commu- and contributing to a community that they grew up with to increase the healthcare presence and also access. Was that something that drove you when you were going through medical school um, to kind of contribute back to the Latinx population? Yes. So one of the things, originally I'm from Panama. So um, I'm coming from uh, Central America, a country with some um, poor resources. Uh, so in medical school, I started real- realizing how different it was the care for one population that have insurance and that can go to the doctor, to the other population that live in the rural areas and they cannot uh, afford health care. So I started there in, in when I was back in Panama to uh, volunteer myself to many health fairs and going to the very rural areas of Panama and seeing such advanced disease in people because they didn't have the care of it and then trying to see how we can advocate for them. So that was my first exposure to what this party means. Uh, it, did, it didn't have to be a lot with uh, uh, race, ethnicity, but it has to be a lot sometimes with rural and urban. So people that were in urban areas were having more access compared with rural. And I came to the U.S., did my residency in Miami. And then I saw mm-hmm. definitely now there was a big disparity on people that were having. And I was in a hospital that have like a private hospital and a county hospital together. So I was rotating in both. And I saw the difference where the people in the private hospital with all the power of the insurance, they can do whatever they want and everything was easy. But then when I was in my continuity clinic in the county hospital, that was mainly Latinx community, mainly coming from Cuba with poor access, with poor insurance, having to, as a resident, struggling what, what I can do for the patient because they were not be able to even afford some of the medication that the, the same clinic offer because sometimes you say, oh, it's $4. Yes, but $4 sometimes is not a lot, it's a lot of money for, for others. So, um, I, I, and then I start focusing them there, seeing the difference in really Latinx one, because I feel identified, I am part of the community, so I feel that I, I needed to contribute. I moved to my fellowship. My fellowship me offered the opportunity to go to an underserved clinic, mainly again with Central American in, in Maryland, with Central American uh, people that were farm workers that came to this country mainly undocumented to try to work and earn their life, but there was no health care provided to them. So we were the source of health care uh, at this time more in endocrinology, dealing a lot with diabetes and obesity. So, so again, seeing that when I started faculty, the first thing that I promised myself was that my volunteer time, I will dedicate it to help the community that I serve. And then I start working in a, in a, as a volunteer in a sh- 
charity clinic or in a free clinic where uh, uh, start creating programs and projects to help this community. I understand the culture, I understand the language, so providing that difference in language and cultural barrier that others cannot provide. Start working on a clinic in Rhode Island where I start my first job and start creating projects where it was uh, uh, ways, different ways of trying to address the disease not just based on medication, because I knew that medication was going to be difficult, but based on exercise and lifestyle modification and programs that the community become the community, the community center become the center for the community involving neighbors and in the Latinx community involving families and priests and people that comes to the to the to the community so to the centers to to provide that kind of care. And then when I moved to Arizona, I tried to mm, imitate the same thing that I was dealing uh, uh, now with a more uh, amount of population that are Latinx. 33% of Phoenix is identified as Latinx with only 5% of people in the healthcare system being identified as Latinx. So I start uh, continue working, finding clinics. I was able to find a clinic that uh, um, right now the medical director and then try to improve and definitely advocate in the community to again become that community clinic, the center for the community. Using he community healthcare workers, going door by door during COVID time to tell them the truth about what is what what's, what was happening, talking to them in the same language and talking to them in the same culture. We think about Latinx is not just one culture; it's a t 20, 30 cultures in it that we need to understand. So, so all of that helped me and stimulated me to to continue working with the Latinx community. That is a little bit special because we cannot deal with one Latinx as we did with the others. And just a quick example of that, when I was in Rhode Island, I, my main Latinx community was Puerto Rican and Dominican Republic people. So the base of their food was rice. So I create programs that is to decrease rice consumption because of high carbs, uh, diabetes, and obesity. I moved to Phoenix, and then the main community is Mexican and Central America. And then what happened is that I start talking to them, and they say, like, no, I'm eating fine, because I was focusing my speech on rice, and they don't eat rice. They eat corn. So I needed to change all the things that I have about rice to corn so they can really understand. So it's, it's, it's a little bit a special ethnicity because it's not that you can deal with the same pattern to everybody. You have to see where they are coming from, what are the traditions of their country, and then trying to adapt that to uh, to achieve your goals of providing better health and health care to them. Yeah, it's it's so um, like amazing and interesting um, about the 
I guess the monolith when we say like black population or the Latinx population, Latin E population, that we I think kind of think it's a monolith. Not saying we, but just in general, it's like a monolith. Like you know, it's this one silo. And I, I talked to guests and friends about this, like um, where I hate where it's like the disease processes is more of like not more, but defines the population those populations when we approach them. But there's actually like such a great. Um, like beauty and just how diverse each of those populations are. There's no monolithic aspect to it, um, especially when you know we talk about the difference of the cultures and like we're talking about the the fact of how to uh, um, approach like those patients in a way that's familiar with them and also that's comfortable for them to talk. Um, and so, and also to transition to also to talk about the the work of like having this clinic and uh, building it up and having the population come and having people help to, to, to continue working on it. I, I, I think I wanted to transition a bit. I know I'm kind of mumbling here and there because I'm just like, oh, this is amazing. Um, about uh, something you said earlier, and that was medical journalism. And I've seen that you have been um, able to contribute to medical care and knowledge through um, different different like tv programs and interviews and just wanted to get your aspect about how did you start in doing that um and what is your advice for people to people who uh may be interested in doing it yeah I, this is very interesting because i i never thought that i will appear in a tv show or or a news because i'm afraid of cameras and afraid of talking in to people and more an introvert person but one of the things was that during the covid pandemic the there was a need to communicate to the Latinx community in Spanish what was happening, why this was uh, occurring. I was in the clinic and listening to things that the, the community was doing, like hot tea, drinking very hot tea to, to kill the virus in the mouth, and then people get burned and then come to the hospital or the clinic, things like that. So... So the, I got the first opportunity for when one of the Spanish media, Telemundo Univision, to talk about COVID. And then uh, I felt that in that point of my, of my life, I needed to continue doing that because I wanted that the community understand what was happening. So I started with the TV, expanded to radio because one of the characteristics is that the Latino community listened a lot to radio, mainly the older generation, not so much the younger generation, and then start doing some radio shows, explaining, uh, partner with uh, uh, then community workers and community organizations that they do Facebook Live and Instagram Live, and then uh, partnering with the churches and all of that to to do that for in Spanish for the Latino community, because if if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lack of information in Spanish. There was everything communicated in English, but the Spanish was late, and and th that's what I wanted to integrate. Many of the people that live in the Latinx community do not understand English, so. I wanted to reach to those people. Those are the abuelitas, the grandmas that were telling their kids or their grandkids things that they were not true. It's just because they never, no, none of us has lived about, they knew about the COVID-19. So I started doing that. And then after that, I just got used that, I realized, sorry, I, I, I realized that there was 
such a lot of need of information in Spanish for this community that I wanted not to do it only for COVID, but then with the vaccine, and then now with any issues that happen that they need a person to explain things in Spanish. I read a little bit, probably it's not my area of endocrinology. COVID was not my area in endocrinology, it was more ID. But, you know, they needed to be to find a face that is a trusted source for them. And I always say the uh -huh, same thing, uh -huh. like Dr. Fauci, yes, he was a trusted source for us as physicians, as scientists. He was a trusted. But when you translate Dr. Fauci to the community, nobody knows who is Dr. Fauci. Yes, they have seen him in TV probably, but they, they don't know them. They don't trust on him. We needed doctors from the community that talks to the community and that's how i got involved in medical journalism we still need more like i am well known in one area in phoenix arizona uh, but we need the same thing that happened in in other states where latino communities are, are growing uh, because they need to understand that that person that is talking in the tv in the radio in the facebook in the social media that person is really telling the truth and that's the person that I will believe whenever something happens. So we need to get that trust from the community and the best way to get it is the doctors that are in front line in the front line, seeing patients, seeing the families of those people and then telling, Oh, you know, the doctor X is telling me to do this and this and he's the one that appeared in T V so follow follow that person too. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it is uh, so true. Again, when you have people who are um, able to see, identify with somebody who's like, okay, we had a shared experience in a way, not the same, but there's some commonalities to sharing where um, we're like, okay, I can get, I can understand that and I can get that. And right, that person on TV, <laughs> I know who they are. I, I see them, but I, I identify with them. And if this is what they're saying, and I, and as a physician, and I'm going to really take on that. And I'll also like, combating medical uh, misinformation as well too where um, either there's something that is either believed or is not understood or um, unfortunately if if a source gives somebody the wrong information and it's like combating not only just that wrong information but also trying to tell people what the right information is and having people believe um, hopefully or trust like their right information is the correct information uh, in, in that aspect. So I, I wanted to talk about your role um, uh, in DEI, especially in the medical school. And wanted to ask, like, how did you um, get? Uh, how did you transition into into that role yourself? Was this something that you were kind of seeing yourself doing as well too, or was it kind of just like an opportunity presented itself, and it was like, oh, okay, we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, I, I think that was this kind of again things in life that. I was never expecting to do. When I finished my fellowship, my really dream in my career was to become a researcher and do a lot of research. I did my fellowship at the NIH with that goal, was just focusing on research. And and then I transitioned to uh, to being a practicing physician and then moving from, from one part of the country to another. And something that I realized was that in Phoenix, Arizona, I felt more a minority than in Rhode Island uh, where I was before. And something was wrong because the population of Phoenix, Latinx population was 
33, 34%. Probably Phoenix is 40%. The state is 33%. And how can I be um, feeling more minority in a place where 40% of the population is Latinx? And it was because mm -hmm. inside the healthcare system, we are only 5%. And we've, if we talk about other minorities, like 12 point, uh, we have, uh, sorry, 1.7, of the population are black African-Americans in Phoenix. And we can see mm -hmm. that probably 0.8% are black African-American in the healthcare system. And the Native mm -hmm. Americans are smaller amount too so i start seeing that the, there is a discordance how these people specifically with latinx that comes to the hospital don't see people like them don't have the same linguistic characteristic because many of them do not speak spanish and also no it's not just the language it's the cultural understanding of where they are coming from so i then decided to you know, I need to make a change. And the change was getting involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion. That by the same time, the associate dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion arrived to the, uh, to the college. And then I started talking to him about my passion and, and focusing a lot of that, what they were doing in the college and graduate medical education, mainly in residency and fellowship and trying to diversify, finding ways to diversify the workforce. So people that come to the hospital see people similar to them. They were doing a lot of great job in undergraduate medical education, the pathway programs they were doing, uh, going to the elementary school, but the translation after that to graduate medical education was not so well established at the time so I wanted to work on that. And I started working on that. Um, at the beginning, the first years was like uh, a very small de uh, department uh, trying to do as much as we can. Then, of course, May 2020 came. Multiple issues happened during that year in 2020 besides COVID. There was the murder yep. of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and mm -hmm. this triggered out the need of making a change. And then the university decided to put really interest, even though they were interested to put really their what they were saying in their actions, and then making mm -hmm. our division mm -hmm. stronger and creating more and more different things. And with that, then I start expanding not just uh, with residents and fellows, but getting involved with some organizations that promote underrepresented minorities in medicine. I got involved with mm -hmm. one organization called Elevate Med that provides some kind of mm -hmm. support, financial support to the medical students, but also provide guidance and lectures and teaching and mentorship to them. Probably the financial support mm -hmm. is not the biggest but all the program behind what Elevate Med is doing is what is the important part. So getting involved with them, understanding more what is the need of, 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 of those medical students and how they can survive in their career and then making excellent in, as a, as a, as, as in the next steps. 
got involved with another organization that focused more on college students and 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 uh, uh, based on Massachusetts called the Pathway Program, and then uh, uh, trying to now now focus more in undergraduate uh, uh, students. And then trying to make them uh, understand that they can go to college, they go to college students, so they can go to, to to the medical school, and then in the college also getting my words out to high school, middle school students, so they can see that there is people like them in medicine. That it's not impossible. If for me it was not easy, I'm the first generation in my in my uh, family to go to to university and have finish a degree, so it was not easy. But always I got the support from others that go through the same thing, uh, and that's what I want to to provide. And something specifically with the Latinx community that we don't have again with others is that when you try to do this for the parents that are here, their first generation here, you have to talk to them in Spanish. Many mm -hmm. of them do not speak English, and they, something that the Latinx community have is that they want that their kids go to college. That's something in their mind, even if they only went to elementary school. They come here, they want that their kids go to college. But you have to explain to them what is going to college in Spanish. Because in our countries, in Latin America, we don't have college. You jump from high school to university. They usually, many of the universities, if you, there is some uh, scoring process, but they are free. So you don't have to pay. So then you, when you tell, when they come to this country, they think that these are the same. And it's not the same. Here, there is a college, and it's very expensive. And these are mm -hmm. frontline workers that do not have that experience. So to them, you have to explain them in Spanish what is the process that this is possible, that these are the things, where are the resources that they can find in Spanish. But then when you talk to the students, you have to talk to them in English because they will not mm -hmm. understand the Spanish part. So you have to talk to them in English and then telling them how they can achieve, how they can tell their parents that there is possible to go to college. So it's a little bit a dichotomy on how you express yourself to both. But the goal is to achieve that if you want to go to college, you want to go to medical school, it is possible. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of resources out there the things that we need to do is to try to communicate that kind of things. And plus, we it's a difficult process because now when they go to the hospital, the parents or the kids go to the hospital, they don't see people like them. This happened with Native American, with Black African American, with Latinx, with any minority. They don't see people like them. So what is they are thinking is that, oh, nobody's like me. I, I will never make this. Let's let me go and do farming, because this is whatever they have been seeing in their entire life. But yeah, we have yeah. to tell, break that cycle, and start telling. And how do we do that? Well, with teaching, 
with finding a lot of finance opportunities, non-for-profit that are doing this kind of work, and the college that really embrace DEI so they can uh, outreach more of the community. Sometimes what I feel is that, they, yes, every institution have a DEI statement now, but not every institution mm-hmm. put that DEI statement into practice. We need to find those mm-hmm. institutions that they, they put those DEI statements into practice so we can just continue and nurture that. But as I mentioned, going back to your question, how I got involved on all of this, it was because I was seeing these kind of things that were happening outside and inside, and, 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 and I felt that I needed to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And yeah. one time I communicated with one of my mentors, and I never forget what he told me. He said, Ricardo, if you want to continue doing research, that's great. You will change a population, a small population, uh, depending on the research that you're doing and the disease that you're studying. But if you do health equity, you will change communities and a lot of the country. So always that stay in my mind and always I came to this, I think I came to this world to make some changes probably just in my local area or a national area or international area. But that was what I wanted to do and I, that's why I put a lot of more effort r- right now into that DEI a- arena than to other things that I always was thinking to do in my life. Uh, yeah, th- again, thank you for, for, for that uh, discussion in terms of this. You never know what the future is going to have for you. You know, you have one one point. You're like, okay, I have to do this or get to this point because that's where I have the biggest impact. But unsuspected or surprising things come along the way, and you realize you can have a, a equally as much impact in other ways that basically utilizes your talents. Um, I did want to go back because I, I, I found this sort of interesting, um, and I, I've had those of the Latinx Latinx um, community come on the podcast before, and one of the the one of the many, of course, uh, things that we have talked about has been the, uh, language, Spanish. Um, and when you talked about talking to the parents in Spanish and then talking to um, their children in English, like the, it, I guess my question is in terms of the the language and it, it is it is it lost along the way? You think, especially for those who are first or second generation. Um, um, student. Yeah, I, I think that there is a, several components. One are there are certain groups of Latinx that came to this country being refugees from other countries or being running away from what was happening in their country. Those people don't want to remember what they suffer in their country. So I feel that those communities don't want to teach Spanish because Spanish remember mm-hmm. what was the problem in their country. Examples, mm-hmm. Cuba, for example. When I was in Miami, many of my younger Cuban patients, Cuban-American patients, didn't speak any Spanish. And it was a little bit sad saying, well, you, you can be bilingual, but then you understand what was happening. It's because that Spanish remember them, the parents remember what suffering mm-hmm. was. Other mm-hmm. is the racism. So many of the people that I have in, for example, in Phoenix, 
never spoke to their kids, even they didn't know English, but they didn't speak to their clique in Spanish because they were afraid of discrimination, of racism, of telling go back to your country. So they only make their kids speak English. So they feel more integrated to them. And there is a third group um, that is different, that they came to this country in a different way, that they teach their kids Spanish, that they make their kids bilingual because they understand the benefit of having speaking two or more languages. So those are the third three groups. But then it's very difficult to understand in which group they are. So usually uh, I try first to ask a lot of questions and see if the kids respond in Spanish and see how the family interaction is. And then I can address or completely in Spanish or Spanish-English or the kids completely in English. Of course, the other component is that because they are living here, the schools, the friends, everybody speaks English and they feel more comfortable. It's not that they don't know Spanish, but the vocabulary in English is higher because that is the opportunity. One of the things that I was very surprised, believe it or not, is that in the majority of the public school in Phoenix, in Arizona, 33% of the population Spanish speaking or Latinx uh, community, only the few, few public schools that are bilingual. Mm-hmm. You go to other states, mm-hmm. when I was in Rhode Island or Maryland, you see that the majority of the public school were bilingual. And even the population that are Latinx are less. So also it's a culture of the state. We have to understand that Arizona being in the border, a lot of more protection, a lot of more issues with the Latinx community. You remember there was a sheriff that was not so friendly with the Latinx community. So a lot of more Mm -hmm. protection and discrimination against that you will not see in other states where the diversity is more. So also that's another part of the process in DEI. Not just changing and telling everybody that you can do it, but changing the culture of the community and the state on how to make it more feasible to go. And another anecdote, uh, when I was moving from Rhode Island to, to Phoenix, one of my mentors told me, are you really moving to Phoenix? I, I was always thinking the opposite. It's like, and you move to Phoenix, yes, the 40% of the population is, is Latinx. It's, it will feel more mm-hmm. like at home. But she's like, she told me, like, are you really moving to Phoenix? You know that the Joe Arpaio, uh, 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 this sheriff that was, is, was there. And I said, like, yeah, but this was several years ago. So, but still in the mind of the people, is that culture of discrimination, is that culture of white superiority that they say, go back to your country, you speak Spanish. And then in the people that live there, that's still that culture that we need to overcome and overcome not only in, uh, uh, in, in other areas, but overcoming healthcare because then the people do not trust healthcare 
because they mm -hmm. are afraid that they are going to do investigation or do research or do things without their permission. So, so it's 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 a work in progress. I think that DEI mm -hmm. will see the change in the next generation, like 50 years from now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and again, just thank you for these nuggets of, of wisdom and, and like, your experiences. Because, um, again, it was just for me, it was just, you know, to hear and kind of stay bear witness to hear about the different types of way language is, is translated or carried amongst families, um, especially in my next like day population, um, and kind of like the differences and similarities about that. Um, I guess along the same vein, this is person's experience and I've asked this to some of my Latin ex or um, guests as well too if they can explain like their what they feel like being a, a Latino is or what their experiences are or like what makes them proud of, of that what's their own definition of being a Latino or Latina always I think that it's the uh, identify with one or another race ethnicity or any other of the umbrella of diversity is mm -hmm. um what it's what are your feelings and what are your characteristics that prepares you with that community or with that uh, uh, diversity area so I think for me being a Latino oh, I, I feel it because I'm coming from Latin America I am first generation here but also uh, I, I feel that uh, there is a uh, uh, there is a need of, of Spanish speaking uh, healthcare workers. That there is a need that people understand our culture. I f embrace it in everything that I do uh, uh, because I I really believe that trying to make other understand where we are coming from and what is our uniqueness. It's, it's important. I feel very proud to be Latino. Uh, I think that uh, that's something that I am not in, in, in a process where I want to forget what my roots were. I want just to continue where my roots are and then trying to explain my root to others and celebrate our traditions because I think that this country makes it will be enriched if we do all of these kind of things. This is the uniqueness of the U.S., where you can have multiple cultures, and you can have multiple discussion about different uh, cultures in the same place. But the only way to continue doing this is that if people from those identities continue identify from those places, uh, and uh, sometimes. Uh, one of the things is that yes you can identify uh, as a latino but it doesn't mean that you cannot help others as the same thing is you identify as white and you cannot help others mm -hmm. i'm part right, for example right. as a latino i am very involved in underrepresented minorities whatever that means uh, uh, um, from black african americans native american lgbtq anything because that's the thing even uh, 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 you identify with one group there's multiple characteristics on the other groups that also need you and, and I don't know I don't know if I answer your question but but really in my in my in my case I'm very proud to be Latino I'm very proud to speak mm -hmm. Spanish 
and I'm very proud of trying to transmit what I know of my culture to others so others can understand. Because the only way that we can solve problems if we really understand where it's coming from. And sometimes the conflicts are because we don't understand the others. So I always want to learn mm -hmm. more about the others and that the others learn more about me. So the next question I have is about the Health Equity Fellowship. Um, I just want to know if you can give us some insight about um, what the fellowship is about um, and, and the success that you've seen with it. Yes. So this idea of Health Equity Fellowship started with um, a partnership that Creighton School of Medicine in Phoenix had with a underserved clinic called St. Vincent de Paul. So St. Vincent de Paul, non-for-profit, runs uh, organization that has helped the underserved communities in Phoenix. And when I say underserved, it doesn't mean only Latinx. It means refugees. It means black African-Americans, Native Americans, everything uh, uh, for many years. But there was a process of restructuring and making part of St. Vincent de Paul as part of Creighton, both being Catholic charities. So they wanted to become St. Vincent de Paul an academic center. So several years ago, probably by mid of the 2020, they started this conversation on uh, how to do it. And they received a funding from a non-for-profit for doing this. And the first thing was to restructure the clinic. So provide more staffing, different areas. It was instead of being a primary care with specialties and, and other areas. Uh, and, and then uh, they were doing great things, but moving the needle a little bit more. And in that plan, I remember that the regional dean approached me and say, do you want to create like an, a, a fellowship that addresses kind of things? And I say, yes, that, that, that will be great. So we put together a curriculum on uh, a health equity fellowship. So it will be, it, it was for a one and like a chief resident or young junior faculty at the beginning, we, we wanted to spread more and have any other prof healthcare professional. But because it's a little bit difficult to start very big, we wanted to n narrow it and the things that I knew that was graduate medical education. And we put the program together where there was a from teaching on health equity topics to being present in the clinic and see the reality of what is happening and coming with ideas on how to solve problems, that that will become your scholarly activities and your capstone projects. And then uh, combining that with other areas like uh, going to the Veterans Administration, to the VA, so at least one month to rotate because that's another part of minorities, going to Mexico, uh, to health fairs in Mexico. So putting all these things together and finally, the fellowship was approved. Uh, it took mm -hmm. us a year to get our first fellow uh, because, you know, it's an extra year non-ACGME accredited people that finished residency wants to go and practice and earn money. We were able to do a deal with the uh, Creighton system so they can do like uh, hospitalists and moonlight 
uh, at the Creighton system to get more money than what the fellowship can pay. And we have our first fellow that started in August of this year. And she's really enjoying mm -hmm. the things. One is she wants to do palliative care. So her prim primary scholarly activity has been how to bring palliative care to this community where uh -huh. the name, a majority Latinx, but the palliative care means, oh, you're going to die. And that's not uh -huh. what palliative care really is what you're trying to do. It's just to get better quality of life at that stage of your life. So, so that's her projects. She has been working very hard. First, the first months has been understanding the culture, understanding where they are coming from. Uh, uh, she doesn't identify as Latinx, so it's a little bit harder for her for to understand all of this. And now the next stage is how to implement those pl pl plan and project that she have to the fellowship. So from different from other health equity fellowships where it's more a long distance where you do your project in your own place and then you go and give le get lectures in one place and then you return to the own place and that's it. This is in person during the entire year. You, you, you are there, you will become the trustor for the community. Our hope is that those fellows stay in the Phoenix area. So, uh, so and then these are the next generation of DEI leaders because they get a formal training. But we start with, gotcha. with this is our first, I always call her like our guinea pig. So because she uh -huh. needs to tell us what we are doing wrong, what we are doing right, where we can improve. Uh, so the next fellow gets better training and that's it. Because really there is not a lot of models of in-person health equity fellowships. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, so if you did answer one of the questions I always ask about diversifying in medicine or pathology. And I think one of the common things has been about the... Um, getting out there and showing representation and basically talking to college students and high school students and, and finding a way with that. Um, I think what I'll do is, so this last question I have is um, about ways people can get in contact with you or what are ways that people can follow you on a social media platform to see what kind of uh, things you have been, see how your career flourishes. Yes, so I'm more than happy to, to help anyone in, the, in their pathway uh, 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 um, I'm also very focused in another group that is called International Medical Graduates. I'm an international medical graduate. I know how the the difficulties that they have. Uh, interested in growing and diversifying the pathway here from with the minorities in, and I know that we focus race, ethnicity, and gender, but there's so much other different minorities, disability, rural, first generation, mm -hmm. all of that. Yeah. So ways that they can communicate with me, I think it's uh, using my email, that is r-i-c-c-o-r-r-e-a-20 at gmail.com. That's the first three letter of my name. My name is Ricardo, so R-I-C, and my last name, Correa, C-O-R-R-E-A, 20 at gmail.com. Uh, I also have some um, uh, uh, social media accounts. I think that social media now, right now is the way that you can spread more your words and everything. So mm -hmm. my Twitter account yeah. is at dr from doctor, at dr mm -hmm. Ricardo Correa. 
So my first name and last name, Dr. Ricardo Correa, that's, that will be. And if you want to find me in Facebook, Instagram, uh, or LinkedIn, if you put uh, Ricardo Correa, my first and last name, it will be, it, it will pop up. Um, and definitely, uh, this is a work of many, many people. This is not a work of one. I think everybody that has helped me up to now, but we need more and more people involved in this if we want to make changes. So anyone that is interested, I know that uh, with you, Michael, they contact, they can contact me, they can contact other, but the only way to make changes, as I mentioned, is coming stronger together and demonstrating mm -hmm. the need of what we are talking today because that is the way that we can really make the changes. Gotcha. Do you have any final comments um, before we head off? My final comments is the sky is the limit. So if mm -hmm. you have dream one, becoming a physician, two, when you're a physician making changes, or three, anything that you want to do in your life, just put it as an objective and achieve it. There is nobody that can tell you that the opposite. Yes, it will not be straightforward for many of us. We will have to fall down and stand up and fall down and stand up. We will have to work probably two or three times harder than others. But it's so much rewarding at the end of the day when you achieve it what you wanted. If it costs you more than others that get it for granted. So sky is the limit, just achieve your goals. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, giving a discussion with us and talking to us. Um, really appreciate the time and love the conversation we had. Yeah, th thank you so much, Michael, for the things that you do. I think that it's amazing all how you are that's diversifying the pathway in pathology and extending to mm -hmm. other areas uh, I really admire uh, how, how your passion for this is and as I mentioned m we need a lot of us on this so we are more yeah. than willing yeah. to welcome more and more and more people Hi again friends well this is it for today's episode thank you for taking the time out of your busy day Hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope to see you soon.